Law is powerful. It can help you or it can hurt you. It impacts everything you do. What you don't know can hurt you. And what you do know can empower you. So each week, this program, Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell, brings you lawyers and other professionals to share their knowledge and expertise with you to empower you. But please remember, what you hear on this program is for information purposes only. No attorney-client relationship is established by anything said on the program. Each person's circumstances are different, and you must seek individual advice for any situation for which you need legal counsel. All of these programs are archived on my website, lawtalkwithethelmitchell.com. So if you missed a program, go there, and they are posted there by my webmaster, Earl Hooks. My executive producer, Stacy Royster, is taking a day of leave today. She's off today, but I am very happy to be joined by my friend and colleague and business consultant, Diana Banks of Larry's Consulting Group and the Banks Influence Executive Coaching. Welcome, Diana. Thank you very much for being here, who graciously agreed to help me out today. Radio One engineer Daryl Farley is ready to receive your calls, so please call us to join the conversation at 1-800-450-7876. That's 1-800-450-7876. Our program today is going to be talking about lawyers and the law, how they are so essential in every aspect of our lives, and the military is no different they too have and need attorneys for many different reasons. Today we have our own national military law with us, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher B. Shaw, who will discuss the unique role of lawyers in the military, especially my attorney. But first let me tell you about him. He's a very impressive young man. Since 2013, Lieutenant Colonel Shaw has served as Special Assistant for Legal Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Navy at the Pentagon, where he provides legal advice to the Secretary of the Navy. He drafts and reviews all correspondence relating to legal matters and responses to Congress that are signed by the Secretary. He provides ethical advice to the Secretary of Navy regarding travel, gifts, and use of governmental resources. Lieutenant Colonel Christopher B. Shaw is a graduate of the United States Military uh, Naval Academy in Annapolis in, in 1994. He completed Infantry Officer School in 1995 and Naval Justice School in Warfighting Amphibian Warfare School Command and Staff War College in 2004. He also earned his Juris Doctorate degree at Boston College Law School in 2004 and went back to the San Diego, University of San Diego School of Law, where he got a Master's of Law with an emphasis in international law. His paper named the International Description Against Torture and the United States Categorical and Qualified Responses was published in the Boston College International and Comparative Law Review. After law school, he was assigned as a senior trial counsel for Legal Team Echo, the busiest trial shop in the Department of Defense. He prosecuted murder, rape, and drug distribution cases and supervised eight prosecutors. He later deployed to El Anbar Anbar province in Iraq 
as the first Marine Logistic Group staff judge advocates. He supported detention operations for the base and led the legal services team of six Navy and Marine justice judge advocates that serviced over 25,000 service members. He also provided legal training to the Iraqi Army. After Iraq, he returned to Camp Pendleton, where he served as STC and OIC of the legal team ECHO and tried a number of high-profile cases. After obtaining his LLM in international law, he was assigned to the U.S. Marine Forces Pacific as a deputy staff judge advocate providing advice to the three-star commander whose area of responsibility encompasses all Marine Forces from Arizona to India. Lieutenant Colonel Shaw has received two meritorious service medals, two Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medals, and the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. He is a member of the Washington Bar Association and is a past member of the National Black Lawyers Association. He's also part of the new uh, committee or group in the Washington Bar Association uh, for military and government lawyers. And I, I want to put that out because if there, I know a lot of lawyers listen to this program. So if you are current military or past military, and or if you work in the government in any capacity, the Washington Bar Association, which is the local chapter of the National Bar Association, and is headed by another ex-military uh, person, Karen Evans, um, is has has started a, a special group for military and government attorneys. So uh, please do join the Washington Bar Association, and I think you will find a wonderful welcome there uh, for that uh, with that committee and and in that organization. But welcome, Lieutenant Colonel Shaw. Welcome to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. Good morning, ma'am, and I'd like to say good morning to your listeners. Um, tell me, please, I'm really excited to have you with us today. Uh, tell us a bit about what military lawyers do and why do you say they're needed everywhere in the military, especially minority lawyers. Talk to us about that. Well, much like lawyers are the conscience of society, uh, military lawyers are the conscience of the military. Uh, we, the military, as we all know, conducts operations all over the world. Um, increasingly, those operations are legally in intensive, and lawyers uh, can assist commanders in determining what the rules of engagement should be, what are the legal boundaries of what they can do on the battlefield and off the battlefield, and when we turn to uh, the role as commander uh, that commanders have for military justice, where they choose uh, what service members should be uh, charged and what service members should not be charged, uh, the military lawyer assists the commander in making those determinations. So, so uh, it, it's kind of strange as a layperson to realize that in our country, law really does have an impact, even in war. And certainly, I mean, when we when we look historically, uh, there's always been, uh, particularly after you know the mid 1800s, there have been constraints on what we can do on the battlefield and what we can't do on the battlefield. That was certainly intensified after World War II uh, with the Geneva Conventions, and when we look at uh, some of the issues that we had in Vietnam, like increasingly the battlefield, uh, the physical battlefield is also a legal battlefield where we have to ensure that American forces are acting 
um, properly within the constraint of the law of armed conflict and also uh, within the constraints of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is um, uh, basically the uh, United States law that uh, tells service members what they can and they can't do from a legal perspective. So, so there is the law as it applies to war, Yes, ma'am. But there's also the law as it applies to the military servicemen and their conduct. Would that be an appropriate distinction? That, that's a great way to make the distinction. And if, if you think of the challenge that we have uh, with the military of that a military member could be operating, let's say, in Virginia, or he could be operating uh, in Maryland, or he could be on liberty um, or leave, in any place in the United States or anywhere in the world. And then he could be doing a military operation uh, throughout the world mm -hmm. uh, that there's a concept that we have called universal jurisdiction. So okay. normally in the, in the civilian world, we think of jurisdiction in a territorial way, in the sense that there's the laws of Virginia, mm -hmm. there's the laws of Maryland, uh, there's federal law for the United States. But for the military member that is going from state to state, country to country, uh, we need to have your universal jurisdiction. And that universal jurisdiction is created by the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is actually codified in Title 10 of U.S. Code. Oh, okay. And what that means is that regardless of where the service member is in any state or any country, or even if he was on the moon, per se, mm -hmm. that the Uniform Code of Military Justice follows him. Okay. So you have your own, or we have our own code of justice for our military men and women. Yes, ma'am. Wherever they are. Wherever they are. Wow, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so lawyers are involved at every part of that system, I guess. They are. They are as advisors. Um, if we look to, and really what lawyers do in the military, they act in the military justice realm. They act in the operational law realm. They uh, what's the operational law realm? What does operational that mean? law is uh, law dealing with uh, the battlefield, uh -huh. law dealing with operations that could be humanitarian assistance or disaster relief. So okay. any type of operations that the military does, whether it's kinetic or uh, disaster relief. I see. And then finally, uh, we operate with legal assistance. So much like earlier in your uh, the previous show, you talked about wills and power of attorney, mm -hmm. uh, lawyers in the military also provide that type of legal advice to the service member uh -huh. so that they can have appropriate wills and power of attorney. Yeah, uh, they need that. Yeah, they, they do. They do. Now, what is the unique role of the minority lawyer? Why do you say that minority lawyers have a particular role to play in the military, and what is that role? Well, I think when, when you think about that, you have to think of the, the history of the United States, which has is is, is not always been um, has, has not always been favorable to minorities. Okay. Um, and we also have to look at you know, both, both internal, but we also have to look external at uh, some of the, um, the policies historically that the United States has, has followed have not, again, particularly been um, favorable. Uh, to minorities. So if you would you would continue explaining to us about 
the role of minority lawyers in particular and why you say it's so important yes, in the military? I think that uh, the role of military lawyers, uh, particularly minority lawyers, is critical. And we're going to look at it from really two perspectives, both internal to the military and external to the military. Okay. Uh, so internally, uh, when we look at how the military is structured, uh, and we're going to use a pyramid, um, you know, for the most part, the, the bottom of the pyramid are the enlisted uh, Marines, soldiers, airmen. And these are generally folks that uh, went to high school, graduated from high school, and they are um, most of the people that are doing the work. They are um, in from anywhere from two to four to six years. Uh, the the racial makeup of the enlisted are very similar to the racial makeup of our country. They are mm -hmm. reflective of the um, of the racial uh, makeup of our country. When we go to the next tier, uh, there are staff NCOs, so staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants, master sergeants, first sergeants. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the in the Marine Corps, um, the racial makeup of, of this is it's probably like fifty percent African American. Oh, really? Um, it's, it's actually significant. And um, mm, I didn't know that. You know, and uh, you know, so it's not quite. It's actually African Americans have a greater uh, representation hmm. in that rank, and probably because of the opportunities that are in the military. So right, right. These are folks again, uh, high school diploma, some some college, uh, mm -hmm. but they're kind of like the middle management. Uh, they're the the bat, what we call the backbone of the Mar uh, backbone of the Marine Corps, anyway. Right. The backbone of the force. If they're they're making things happen. Then we get to the officers. Uh, mm -hmm. The officers are, are college educated. Uh, they all have to be college educated. Um, when we get to senior office, like senior officers, like general officers, um, they probably have master's degrees and some PhDs. Uh, this is not the this part of the military is not reflective of the makeup of the United States. Uh, they are, um, you know, mainly white males. Uh, much like okay. when you look at the the top echelons of, of corporate America. Corporate America, right? So, right. Uh, the folks that make the decisions in the military, the the, the, the policies, uh, how we treat our force, what we do with our force, um, is not representative of the uh, of the nation that we serve. Mm -hmm. So, for uh, lawyers, minority mm -hmm. lawyers, to act as their conscience. Um, allows for uh, the military to have a stronger con con conscience with greater perspective, uh, particularly perspective for things that may affect uh, the African-American community or minority communities. And, and give us some examples, if you don't mind, of how does that show up? I mean, are we talking about how the individual military enlisted person is treated when they are accused of something because one of the things that as we were talking that you made me aware of is there is the law of war if you will i.e. how we act in a combatant situation but that there are there are a lot of uh, times when you are having to prosecute and or defend a member of the military against charges of common criminal types of behavior like rape, robbery, uh, murder, things like that. I mean, maybe I'm not saying it right, but you know what I'm no, trying to say? Know, Can I you explain that to the audience for me, please? Quite, quite well, ma'am, uh, in, in a sense of that all the issues that affect society are, are issues that affect the military. So we have uh, Marines and sailors and, and soldiers that are accused of rape, murder, 
drug use, uh, uh, drug distribution, all those types of things, and, and they have to be held accountable. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I've been in a courtroom as a prosecutor where only um, the defendant and myself are, are the only African Americans in that in that courtroom, and that's that's uh, was a bit uncomfortable. Um, but I think certainly the defendant probably um, felt a little more assured that um, the prosecutor looked like him uh, mm-hmm. versus him going him or she going into a system where uh, nobody in the courtroom looked like him. So there's. It's important for, for all justice to, for things to actually be just, but it's mm-hmm. also important for the perception uh, to seem just. Mm-hmm. So bringing more minority lawyers into that process as defense counsel, as trial counsel, what we, what we call prosecutors in the military, and judges uh, certainly assists both with the perception but also the reality. And I, and I, think, <coughs> you know, I can go back to, you know, 20 years ago, when I was a young uh, lieutenant in the Marine Corps, um, you know, I got to Camp Lejeune, and, and literally there were young men that had uh, the Confederate flag tattooed to their body. Uh, wow. There were individuals that um, had, had Confederate flags in their, in their spaces, in their, in their offices, and, and in their In the U.S. Uh, military. Dorm, in the U.S. military. But, but on the other side of that, and, um, and this is why I think it is important for for all types of folks to be in the services, uh, there were African Americans with black power symbols up, mm-hmm. um, and it was. Yeah, well, we never enslaved anybody, though. No, no, okay. and I, and, right, all right, right. So gone. And from, and from mm, my I just had to get that no, in there. I, okay. I got you, man. Uh, okay. <laughs> and from my perspective as a young officer, I was trying to build a team, a mm-hmm. potent team, uh, potentially that would go into battle. So uh, all the Confederate flags came down. And all the black power good. symbols came down in order for us to move forward. Okay. So, um, you know, regardless so you of way how ahead of yourself. <laughs> we're just years. getting there in, in Alabama. They just now getting there when you yes, were twenty years ago. And and that's so internal to the military, where commanders have significant power over you know what time people get up, what time people go to sleep. Yeah, they um, do control that. Who goes in onto a front line? Who stays behind? And yeah. how that happens. Who is allowed the opportunity to become a hero? Mm. Who is denied the opportunity to become a hero? Mm-hmm. I think it's important that there's minority representation. And mm-hmm. one of the ways we can, we can do that is by the attorneys that advise those commanders mm. to be from all parts of society. Mm-hmm. So that's internal to the force. Okay. External to the force, when we start looking at where... Uh, the United States is doing oper- doing operations, in, you know, and, and certainly we are heavily involved in operations in Iraq right now. Uh, we're winding down operations in Afghanistan, uh, but when we look at where we're going to go next, um, you know, and President Obama, I believe, is in Kenya uh, this week, and we did some operations in Somalia. Mm-hmm. So uh, increasingly, the areas that we are in the world are are, are places where there's people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot mind- of people don't realize that a lot of Arab countries have a lot of people of color in them. W- without a question. Uh, and increasingly, we're going to Africa and operating in Africa. Uh, so having minority attorneys that can assist those commanders in making, making decisions and viewing and bringing different perspectives in 
is absolutely helpful, makes the United States more potent, uh, but also, and, and potent in the sense of uh, it is important that as, as a Marine that we can put steel on target and we can be kinetic and destroy, degrade whatever targets we need to, whatever targets are out there that need to be destroyed. But then the other side of that is that if you can degrade a target without using kinetic force against it, with persuasion, diplomacy, or something else, uh, that's just as good, and it puts our soldiers, our Marines, our airmen in less harm. Mm -hmm. So when I think that as a minority attorney or any attorney that could help commanders see that there are multiple ways to um, get through a problem, to have mission accomplishment, uh, and I think that the background that lawyers have uh, with negotiation, uh, mm -hmm. with seeing a problem from multiple perspectives certainly helps. And then when that attorney with all that training also has the perspective from different communities where they come from, mm -hmm. that makes, again, the U.S. military that much more effective. Very good. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I do have, uh, Robin has been on the line for quite some time. Uh, uh, Daryl, can you put Robin on the phone, please? Hello, Robin? Hi, how are you? Yeah, thank you for holding. I'm so sorry, but I wanted to give Lieutenant Colonel Shaw the opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, talk about what he wanted to talk about. But uh, uh, can I help you, please? Yes, good morning to you, your guests in the audience. Good morning. Um, I wanted to know um, for myself and for the audience as well, when you spoke about wheels, um, could you give us like a, a base, like a range of, you know, how much we would pay to, you know, have a wheel or to obtain a wheel? I don't usually do that because it so depends on what you need. It so depends. When you come into the office and I talk to you, then I can give you a better idea at that point. Okay. Okay, but um, could you say it would be a starting fee of two fifty, five hundred, or you know, just like a general starting point? Probably four twenty-five, something like that. Okay, great. Okay, okay. yeah, but people need different things, and um, that's why I kind of hesitate to say any more about it. Okay. Okay. But definitely four twenty-five is kind of the bottom uh, line where we get started at. Okay. Uh -huh. Thank you. All sir. right, and I apologize for having you waiting so uh, long. No problem. But I did want the lieutenant colonel to get started. Thank you for calling, though. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, <laughs> sure. Bye-bye. Um, please give us a call at 1-800-450-7876, 1-800-450-7876. We're talking today about the role of attorneys in the military and about, uh, you know, the law how it is applied, and why it's so important for minority lawyers to be in all areas of, of the military. And I think first uh, our guest did an excellent job of, of describing the military and its makeup. And um, tell us a little bit more about what, how do you become a lawyer in the military? Because you didn't start out as a lawyer in the military. No, it, actually my situation's a uh, different, maybe a bit odd in the sense of that uh, I went to the Naval Academy and after graduating from the Naval Academy, uh, I, I went to, became, became a Marine, went through the infantry officer course and served as an infantry officer for six years. 
but most uh, lawyers that come in the Marine Corps, most lawyers that come in the military, whether the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Army, uh, you know, the first part is uh, going to law school and getting uh-huh. a law degree. Uh, and then after, after or during uh, law school, and in each service has slightly different programs, mm-hmm. uh, you'll, you'll take the bar, you'll pass the bar, uh, and you will then, pass the bar. Pass yes, the bar. <laughs> uh, that's the mission. Yeah. The and uh, once you do that, then you'll go through a justice school. So for Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines, we go through the Naval Justice School, and you're hmm. taught uh, military law. Uh, for oh, the Air Force, okay. they go through their their uh, basic law program. In the Army, they go through their basic law program. Okay. And okay. then, once you're a military attorney, your first two to three years are normally spent in the courtroom where you're a, uh, a prosecutor or a defense counsel. And, and normally what we have, especially in the Marine Corps, is you'll do two years of defense and then one year as a prosecutor, or one year as a prosecutor and two years in defense. Uh, hmm. That way you get to see um, it from both sides. Um, and then after that, you have opportunities uh, to provide legal assistance. Uh, there's a new program that we have in the military where um, victims of crimes, uh, whether it be a robbery, uh, whether it be um, uh, a sexual assault, uh, that they are assigned a victim's legal counsel. Oh, really? So, That's good. Right. So really, yeah. I mean, one of the places where uh, attorneys that want to get uh, litigation experience mm-hmm. um, is in the military. Um, I never thought of that. So you can, you know, I, I tried, you know, tried, uh, meaning, uh, you know, hands down in the courtroom, uh, probably 13 cases in my uh, first two years with with juries. Hmm. Um, and so you have jury trials, just like in the we we do. I mean, and, and they're a little bit different in a sense of that it's truly a jury of your peers. Okay, uh, yeah, because everybody's mili- military. Everyone's in the military. Everyone's uh-huh. wearing a uniform. Uh, oh, you so wear the uniform. You wear the uniform oh, as my. well. Uh, so, um, and that's if you're accused of robbery or drugs or rape or anything like that? Anything at all. So the, the defendant, much like in the civilian world, can go judge alone a bench trial. They can request oh, a bench trial. Oh, okay. But uh-huh. they, are, they have the right to a mem- what we call in the military a member's trial, which is a jury trial. Uh, and in the military system, uh, the, the members, the jury, uh, are used both for the guilt phase and also for the sentencing phase. Oh, the jury decides the sentence, too. Yes. Now, that may change in the future. Uh-huh. Currently, uh, both, um, bo- both the guilt phase and the sentencing phase. This is fascinating. I, I don't know anything about military law at all, so this is, this is really interesting. But we, we still use the same uh, federal rules of evidence Real? Okay. that um, the federal prosecutors use. Uh-huh. So, I mean, very, very similar. Very similar? Very similar rules of evidence. So, it's, it's, so the training you get translates into the civilian world. Absolutely. And a lot of um, assistant district attorney, like if, if a lot of folks that uh, serve in the military then go out and become strong litigators. So uh-huh. uh, F.E. Uh-huh. Bailey is an example. Wow. Of, um, a former Marine 
uh, defense counsel, prosecutor. Uh huh. Usually they do, they do quite well. So it's a it's a great opportunity to do lots of cases early. Uh, and that and helps. It, it helps, and, and I've helps actually a lot. Tried and, uh, supervised tri uh, tri trials in Iraq. You know, so I wow. my trial team did uh, six. I was there for about thirteen months, and we did uh, six actual trials. Wow! Um, and then we did a, a number of um, guilty pleas. Okay. While out in the out in the desert. Very good. Uh, we have a uh, question for Lieutenant Shaw. Hello, Daniel. Yes. Uh, good morning. How good you morning, doing? sir. Thank you for calling. This, this is a question I I had to ask you. Um, me and a friend was in the military. He was in um, I was in the army, right? And he had an MOS with uh, Army Intelligence, and I hadn't heard from him in about a good 12 years. And he went, uh, you know how you go on your 30-day leave? Mm -hmm. he, went, he, went down, he went down south, you know, wearing his you know, regular civilian clothes to see his relatives. And um, last time I heard that, he had a problem with the police down there, and it was a terrible altercation. He, uh, I understood that he put the... the, the it was like three officers he put in the hospital, and they shot him, but he survived, right? Reason, reason why, I think, because they, he was trying to tell them that he's on 30-day leave, and he's, he worked with Army Intelligence. They didn't, what I understood, they didn't believe him. They just look at him as a, as a black man driving a Porsche, you know what I mean? And I'm trying to figure out, what do you think they had done to him? Was it a protocol situation? Because I haven't heard, you know, in 12 years. Is there anything you can answer right, without, to that? No, without um, not knowing more about the situation, it's it's hard for me to, to comment. I mean, certainly uh, folks go on leave, and um, again, I think that um, you know, again, the, the the there's lots of things that are happening in the country right now, and and we all have to be have to be careful and and, and wary and. I think the reality is that um, you know personally for me when I drive, I mean, you know my my plates say uh, our Naval Academy plates, uh, and they say the year I graduated from the Naval Academy, and they say the Marine Corps on it, so that uh, I'm identified for for who I am. So I know that there are a lot of challenges that uh, we are we are dealing with, and I, and I think that uh, not necessarily responsive to your question, but I think it's, mm -hmm. it's actually a larger part of it is that in the military, for the most part, uh, we see ourselves as a community. So mm -hmm. we have commanders that are making the decision about how to police our bases, how to hold people accountable are part of that community. The prosecutors, the defense, the defense counsels are part of that community. The military police that are on our base are part of that community. Uh, we have a sense that we are an inclusive uh, community. Doesn't mean that it always works, um, but it works pretty well because we all see each other as brothers and sisters. Um, mm -hmm. For the larger, I think the larger point that you're making, um, when the police see themselves as separate from the uh, community that they're policing, it only create it can, can it can create misunderstanding, and those misunderstandings okay. can be lethal. Uh, so you know one thing that I think the military does well not not a hundred percent, but but I think we we do decently is that we do see each other uh, as brothers and sisters as one community, 
Um, and I think that, that that limits some of the challenges that we're seeing really throughout throughout the country, and it's because of that separation between the police and the community that they serve. And, and certainly some communities do it very well, and, and others don't do it as well. And you can just look through the paper uh, to understand that. So I'm sorry about you know what, you, your friend. You know, you know, you know what? Uh, maybe he didn't have it on his plate. Maybe he should have. I did remember that the car it didn't have none of that on the plate, like your, yours. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because I did, I was trying to figure out what's going on. Maybe he drove a car without that. You, you know. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't make any difference. Right. Yeah, it, it, should, it should, shouldn't make any difference, it but it does, should. and we know it does. Right. Um, um, but I, I, I wish you well in finding him. I mean, at the very least, do try and, and f- I'm sure you've been trying to find okay. him. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. All right, um, thank you. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for calling in, yes. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I almost call you Attorney Shaw. That, 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 that would be appropriate, but Lieutenant Colonel Shaw, yes. Yes, ma'am. Uh, um, I want to uh, have you say just a little bit more about the uh, military and the particular points that you want to make sure to to make, uh, and then I want to, if you don't mind, introduce your son, who is quite a young man himself, too. Sure. Yes, yes. Well, I, I can say first is that you know whether you're an attorney in the Marine Corps whether you're a pilot in the Marine Corps, whether you're an infantry officer or a logistician. You know, I joined the Marine Corps, and most people joined the Marine Corps for the adventure. Uh, we're, we're young folks, and we're looking for that adventure. We're trying to become, uh, as I say, the baddest warriors on the planet. Uh, I think people stay in the Marine Corps, and certainly I've stayed in the Marine Corps for, you know, 20-plus years because of the people that I get to serve Mm-hmm. with uh, and the missions uh, that I've been able to do. Uh, the Marine Corps and all the services are organizations that, that need perspective, greater perspective. Um, and if we have folks uh, from different communities that represent the entire United States that can help with that perspective, it makes us stronger. It makes us more potent. Um, it allows us to get our, our missions completed better. So mm-hmm. I, I say that, you know, folks that are, are looking for the adventure, that adventure is, is present. Um, it's still real. It's still real. Y'all still uh, jump out of planes and do all them things. Planes, yeah. Paint your face. <laughs> and, and, and again, I think that, you know, for, you know, the other part of this that, you know, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but, you know, I, I've been an officer in the Marine Corps for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten the honor and the opportunity to lead people for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, currently in my role, I, I lead attorneys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the prospect of, you know, it's great to be an attorney. But it's also pretty cool to lead a number of attorneys. So folks um, have to salute you and Karen on like that? People have to salute me. I love and, it. Um, <laughs> and people get to do my legal research for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which makes my job that much easier. So there's a there's an aspect of, and particularly from our community, is is how do you learn leadership? You learn leadership mm-hmm. by doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the military, mm-hmm. on all levels, mm-hmm. affords that opportunity to be a leader because we're all going to get out of the military at some point. Right. Uh, right. So so you 
you go in the military, you, you learn some leadership at what other, what other level, and then you come back to your community, and now you can make your community better mm-hmm. by bringing that leadership. That leadership back. back, back yeah, yeah. I had um, Colonel Howard Cooley on, and he sort of said the same thing. He was on about a year and a half ago, and he talked about how for all of its different aspects, leadership training is the one thing that the military does so very well. Yes, ma'am. There's really almost no other environment in which leadership training is so well taught and stressed, uh, and that you can really get that in the military. And uh, certainly I've seen it in, uh, I used to work with Patrick Henry. It was a minority law firm where all of the men there were, Military lawyers, uh, you know, Daryl Jordan, Richard Patrick, Maynard Henry, Howard Cooley, all of them had come through the military, and you could see it. And for listeners at WOL, the Mo Better Man who got me on the radio, you know, was uh, he got that name in Vietnam in the military. And when he came out, he provided all kinds of programs for children over 30 years you know he was one of the first people on the on the radio even before Kathy Hughes bought the station and continued and he and now his daughter is continuing continues to give back to the community by helping in the community with children so I want to thank you for your service thank you ma'am and all the men and women who who serve out there for us we really appreciate it and I just want to say thank you for, for recognizing it and thank you for yeah. the support that you've given. And I can definitely say that um, historically, and I, I look at history and I, I think of uh, some of our brothers and sisters that returned back from Vietnam and, and the, the poor reception that they received. Yeah. Um, yeah. Compared to, I mean, I served in Iraq for 13 months and the great reception mm-hmm. that I received. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I thank uh, I thank you and I thank the American mm-hmm. public for for that reception. Yeah, we're trying to make up for the Vietnam situation. I think yes, I think ma'am. a lot of us now are because that's my generation, and we are definitely trying to to make up for that and to and to provide the resources that those men, mainly men, but men and women, yes, you know, need to to do that. So thank you for all that you you continue to do. Thanks, ma'am. And uh, I, I want I want to introduce this amazing son of yours, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, when I was growing up, we used to call him Master, you know, <laughs> Master Marcus Shaw, uh, 16 years old. Is that right? That's very true, ma'am. I'm 16 years old. Welcome. Turning 17 next month. Oh, excuse me. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, you are a, you just met the president. Is that right? President yes. Barack Obama. Yes, I was able to meet the president through a program called Boys Nation, sponsored by the American Legion. Okay. And this past Monday, I went to the White House, went through uh, the Secret Service, oh, cool. got into, got to see all the rooms. Everything was open. Oh I got wow! To see a painting of George Washington of all the presidents. Uh huh. Then we got together, and. We, oh, we to just got together with the president. I love it. And no, no, no. We had to wait for the president to come in. Well, and yes. Everybody's waiting. Everybody's waiting. Everybody's <laughs> nervous. Everybody's uh-huh. sweating. Uh-huh. We're just waiting, just waiting. Everybody's looking at each other with anticipation. And then he walks in. Uh huh. We are breathless. We don't know <laughs> what to say. Uh huh. It was 
it was amazing. We got to see the president of the United States, and wow. he is just like how he is on TV. Really? Just, it's it's almost unreal. It's uh-huh. almost unreal. But it's very real. real. Yeah. But it was very real that it happened to me. And wow. I'm so thankful to the American Legion and the program so, Boys Nation. So that, tell us a little bit about is it Boys Nation? Is that what it's called? Yes, that's what it's called, Boys Nation. Okay. And I'm always trying to highlight programs that are beneficial, especially to our children and especially to our young men. So tell me about how did you get to be in this Boys Nation and how did you get to, and where do you go to school? What, what grade are you in? I mean, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you're Lieutenant Colonel Shaw's son, okay? okay. So that says a whole lot all right there. <laughs> I know you are straight, disciplined, and on time all the time, I bet, right? I mean, exactly. he does not even play, right? <laughs> right. But I mean, tell me a little, a little bit. bit. Oh, he plays a little, right? <laughs> but yeah. uh, so where do you go to school? So I go to school at Towson High School. It's... Towson, Maryland. Ta- yeah, Towson. It's in Towson, Maryland. It's okay. right. It's really, really close to Baltimore. Uh-huh. And at Towson High School, I was just voted senior class president. I'm really excited about that. Congratulations! And uh-huh. I also created my own writing club, and I'm the president, the founding president of it. And cool. next year, I'm working to bring a national English honor society into Towson High School. That would be great. Yes, that, that would, would be, be great. Really because cool. when you can write, you can always get a job. Yeah, Trust me on that, that one. That's what I've heard. Trust me, that is true. You because because so many children can't write, and so if you can write, like both of my kids can really write. Right. Okay. They are grown now, but they are they can really write, and that okay. really shows up in their working positions. It makes such a difference. So. I applaud you for doing that. I really do. Thank you very much, ma'am. So now, the Boys Nation thing. Tell me about that. That's run by the American Legion? Yes, it is run by the American Legion. And at Boys Nation, it's a model Senate. And it takes the best and the brightest of everyone from around the country except for Hawaii. because. So this is in all states? In all states, there's Boys State. Okay. And Boys State selects two people who attended Boys State, two students. And they go to Boys Nation. Okay, so you know this is a national radio show. So yes. there are people listening in New Jersey and Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee because I get calls from all those places. So you're saying that people can contact the American Legion if they have a son or a grandson or who they would like to get involved in this. How does that work? So if you would like to get involved in Boys State, you would visit your local American Legion post. Okay, go on. And you would, yes, you would visit your local American Legion post and you're only allowed to participate in Boy State in your junior year. Oh, in high school. In high okay. school. Okay, all right. Yes, uh, that summer when you're about to be a senior. Okay. In grade. Okay, very good. So I, I want my listeners to, to hear that. So if you have a son, a grandson, a nephew, or you know a young man like yourself, exactly. uh, go to the American Legion and, and, and see how your, your, your young man can become. Is it only for boys or is it, do you have there's girls? There's also a girl state. There's a girl state. Oh, there's state. a girl state yes, too. Well. Okay, yes. okay, very good. Yes. Very if good. I can, I mean, the, uh-huh. the American Legion's Boy State Program, which is in every state except Hawaii, uh, is a great transformative program. So I went to Massachusetts Boys State. Marcus went to Massachusetts Boys State. 
And it's about 400 boys that get together during their junior year, and they simulate local and state government. Okay. And because of the caliber of students that go there, it's really a transformative place where you're learning about government, but you're also learning about yourself, and you're competing against some of the best students uh, in that state for these state offices, and then you, again, you simulate government. Wow. It's, it's probably one of the first times, and it was for me anyway, the first time where I competed against students from throughout like different high schools. So whether it was a private school, whether it was a public school, whether it was a great public school, an okay public school, we were all there and we competed against each other. We formed a brotherhood, we formed a bond. And at that moment, or throughout that week, I learned that I could compete against anybody, anywhere, anytime. That's and, so important. Right, and then from that, uh, and Marcus took it a, a step further, uh, where he did Boy State, and mm -hmm. from Boy State, he was elected to one of the two U.S. Senate positions. And oh, from elected, that state, yeah, okay. If you become a U.S. Senator from your state, then you come to D.C. and you ah, simulate federal government. Very good, Michigan. very so good. A, truly a, a great program, and again, a transformative program for me. Uh, I only hope that it's a, it's a transformative <laughs> program, uh, program for Marcus. <laughs> Uh, that it helps you bring up bring up your game. Oh, that is great. Right. That is great. Yeah, because you you had to be county or city or what were you telling me? Um, okay, so to run for U.S. senator in Massachusetts because it is different how they select boys from Boys Nation for Boys Nation in different boys states. Um, there are interview processes for other boys states, but in Massachusetts, boys state. You have to run for U.S. senator. You're campaigning from the very beginning. Oh, so. You you get there and you are assigned to a different city and that's the simulation of the local government part my dad was talking about. Okay. But you get together in counties and you get nominated by your county to go on oh to my. a nominee for your for your party and then okay. you have to beat out everybody in your party to go <laughs> to the general election and then you have to beat out whoever you're facing in the general election to oh, that's go awesome. on to become a that is awesome a that is awesome well congratulations Thank really and truly much. we'll be keeping our eye on you <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's exciting that's very exciting i always love to hear things about when our young people are doing wonderful things thank you yeah very much, that's very good thank you for coming and thank you for coming on the program and you should be very proud of him that i am yes am. and your daughter Thalia, who happens to be here, yeah, beautiful young lady, yes, yes, 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that is just great. So tell me, tell me just one more um, um, thing that you would like my audience to know about the military and, and about being an, a, a uh, lawyer, being a uh, contributor to to the society and the way that you get to do that? Um. Well, ma'am, I, I know that uh, it, earlier in the program you talked about when I was the deputy SJA for Marine Forces Pacific. And um, so basically I was the deputy counsel for a large uh, Marine unit, Marine mm -hmm. Forces Pacific. You said 27,000? So, uh, it was at that, I mean, that was at, 
27,000 was, was in Iraq. Oh, excuse me. The Marine Forces Pacific has about probably 80, uh, maybe even 90,000 Marines under their charge. Okay. Uh, I remember one morning I walked into the building and we had a new foyer that was really a tribute to uh, Marine Medal of Honor winners uh, from World War II and from the Korean War. Mm-hmm. As I walked through, uh, I noticed that there were no African-American Marine Medal None? of Honor winners that were presented. And that, wow. you know, I, I scratched my head. And uh, so I went to my office and I, I Googled to ensure that uh, somehow the Marine Corps was not uh, not showing somebody that did mm-hmm. to receive the Medal of Honor during that conflict. And what I found was there were no Marine Medal of Honor winners that were African American wow. in World War II or Korea. And that was because we weren't allowed to be in the, in the infantry. That's because true. Of the, we weren't allowed to, that is to true. fight on a level that mm-hmm. would put us in a position to where we could medal. be heroes. Right, right. So... Uh, you know, fast forward 70 years later, mm-hmm. when we have a tribute to some of our, you know, our best warriors mm-hmm. uh, that gave the ultimate sacrifice.